0: You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
1: Um, good afternoon. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you all to the Carnegie Endowment. My name is George Perkovich. I'm a vice president uh, for studies here. Uh, it's my pleasure um, to introduce General John Tulin. Uh, there's no issue more important to U.S foreign policy, national security policy, uh, and certainly to South and Central Asia than the future of Afghanistan. Obviously, the U.S. role in Afghanistan uh, has been immensely important. And it's going through a, a period of transition and change, which is very challenging. Uh, we had uh, at this podium last week Senator John McCain uh, Described the Afghanistan war as entering its twilight phase, uh, twilight hours. Um, actually, it's interesting. you didn't say twilight zone, but um, but twilight hours. And and clearly, uh, you know, public opinion uh, is 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 concerned. Would like to see uh, the the winding down of the U.S. presence. And yet, there's a lot of important uh, work that's been done. That's uh, been invested into Afghanistan, and a lot remains uh, to be done. The Strategic Partnership uh, was reported today that it has, it has been agreed. We don't know the, the details of it. But the United States is going to have an ongoing uh, role in Afghanistan, along with uh, elements of NATO and others. So this remains uh, an abidingly important um, issue for the country and, as I say, for the region and, and for NATO. Um, today we're going to focus our attention on the southern part of the country. Um, Helmand was recently described by The Economist as Afghanistan's bloodiest province. Um, under the surge that was ordered by President Obama in 2009, uh, there was a large influx uh, of coalition troops. Um, Marja, a city of less than 100,000, became a test of the counterinsurgency uh, strategy. Um and so this time last year, we were fortunate to have uh, General Richard Mills here, who had just returned uh, from uh, commanding the southwest uh, regional forces in, uh, of ISAF, uh, which included Helmand in uh, Nimrose, and he described the coalition's efforts uh, at that time. Uh, today we have the great fortune to be joined uh, by his successor, General John Tulin, who is now the command, commanding the 2nd Marine Division at Camp Lejeune. Uh, he's just come back from in March from his year as the um, uh, regional commander uh, in the southwest uh, of Afghanistan, um, where he was overseeing more than 15,000 U.S. and allied troops uh, there in the field. And that's what we're going to hear about today. I should just say um, briefly that, that General Tulin, uh obviously – Uh, has an outstanding record of of deep experience in addition to Afghanistan and also in Fallujah and Iraq. Uh, He's been the deputy commander of U.S. forces uh, in Japan. Um, He's a distinguished 35-year veteran uh, of the United States Marine Corps. Um, We are grateful for your service and and honored for your um, presence. Uh, And what we're going to do today is the general make a few introductory remarks. Um, He has a video that he's going to uh, that will be projected on that screen, which I think everybody uh, can see. And if you can't, then in the back, perhaps you can stand up. But I think it's visible. Uh, and then he'll make some more remarks, and then we'll open it up uh, for for discussion. So with that, uh, let me welcome General Truell. Thank you. Thank you, George. Thanks. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, it really is a pleasure to be here in the Carnegie Endowment. I understand it's got a pretty rich history, uh, and uh, well, it's been around a while, I guess. What I'd like to do is uh, show this film. We put this film together uh, in February, late February. I knew that it was very important that uh, when I got back home to be able to get out and uh, spread the word, at least from my perspective. And so hopefully this, what this film will do is it'll point out some of the things that we were focused on. And then what I'll, I'll do after I show the film is uh, make a few remarks, talk about some of the challenges ahead, and then uh, I'm open to a question, any questions. So with that, if we could... I've shown this film. The first comments are being made by the governor, district governor of uh, Marja. So it's Hellman, past and present. It's uh, 12 and a half minutes.
3: For 30 years Afghanistan was uh, deeply involved with the um,
4: uh, war, with a war which is uh, every household they lost their theirs. And uh, in every household they lost one or two uh, of uh, part of their family, a member of their families. And uh, they all got hurt badly. And uh, and this, you know, this place was actually war zone. In this province uh, provincial province was one of the wars
2: first came here, our mission was to take the Taliban and reduce the impact of the insurgency against the government of Afghanistan. Uh, we've taken the fight to the Taliban, and the Taliban no longer can really engage the coalition forces here in northern provinces. Taliban commander has been
3: killed, and the rest of the Taliban have moved out to When we first pushed
0: into Marja back in uh, February 2010, It was almost like a ghost town, for lack of better words. When we showed up, told the people we were coming, there was was no one there. The the bazaars were completely empty. No one was around. After a few weeks, the people started recognizing that the Marines were there. They would come out. They would greet us. They started opening themselves up. And uh, eventually, they started flooding in, performing their jobs within the bazaar. Almost a year later, almost to the date, it was actually a year and two months, I returned to Marja. This time, I found that... The bazaars were completely packed full of people, almost like a city back in the States. The greatest improvement I saw was there were solar panels lighting the entire bazaar. When we moved in there, it it was, like I said, a ghost town. There was nothing. And then all of a sudden, there's paved roads and solar panels. So at night, they can safely walk around with lights all down the main bazaar. which is That was pretty amazing. As you see
5: right now, today, here, like, more than, like, 1,000 people are sitting wooden reinforces and resolving their problems with the government. This place has used to be the hub and the center for uh, for the terrorists or the drug narcotic center in Marja. But as of right now, today, you don't even see the signs or, or effects of them uh, here in Marja.
3: Because, because
4: you've you got, you, here. you all are setting your people
3: free here. Indeed, sir. So. We are together. Yes, we team. are together. You're, You're helping us. are together. helping you.
0: Thank you. Simon, we pushed up
4: uh,
5: just north of here for uh, the PB, and uh, it was just completely empty. Nobody here at all. Not a around.
4: And two weeks later, you pretty much got all this.
0: Yep. I think that you see. It. Uh, I think the best way actually is to go down Highway 1 and see how the uh, the trade, the commercial trade has has developed. It's really fantastic. So I think we have seen uh, during the last uh, year or so, and and also during our tour, a decrease in uh, kinetic activities. Uh, it's going better and better on the uh, commercial uh, side, and we see more and more capable and more popular uh, governance within uh, within the city. Now. The
2: mission is changing somewhat. The mission is changing from what was our responsibility as coalition forces to engage the Taliban to now ensuring that we're backing up the Afghan security forces, the Afghan National Army and the police, civil order police, Border Patrol, National Directorate of Services, etc. And so now we're in that advisor trainer mode. been a rather significant
1: shift for us in the sense that the ANA and the Afghan National Police have really matured greatly over the course of the past year. Uh, But more importantly, what really
4: hurts the enemy is when we have freedom of maneuver on the battlefield and at any one moment they could uh, look behind them and there's a platoon or a company of Marines uh, just landed from our helicopters.
0: As you know, the Taliban have had a large presence in Helmand for the past eight years. I'm happy with the results that the academy and the marines are showing. I'm happy we have soldiers in different areas of Helmand who are trained by marines. 215
1: Corps is the newest corps in the field. It's been built on operations. It's learnt its skills alongside the British Army and the US Marine Corps. And it's now more than a match for the insurgents. Today's Afghan soldiers are learning the engineering skills, artillery skills, intelligence, medical, and clerical skills that are going to sustain it into the future. We're teaching the Afghans to teach themselves, and they're already proving capable counterinsurgents. They're a welcome stop against the injustice and cruelty of the insurgents. They are the future. The ability for what uh, General Nicholson, and then General Mills, and now General Toolin to have establish those relationships with each of their Afghan counterparts. Each of those relationships has sustained the transition from each of those three Marine RC commanders. Um, And and that gives the Afghans a sense of um, uh, strength, knowing that that transition from one leader to another will endure. And that relationship that we've had with the Afghans has never
2: wavered. But in addition, we're still continuing with our efforts in governance and development. So, for example, as many know, we went up to Kajiki just a couple of months ago. Why did we go up there? Because Kajiki stands not only as a symbol of Jaroa primacy, but it also is a symbol of American ingenuity and development. We needed to convince the citizens that there is some benefit to them
4: siding with their government and allowing the government, quite frankly, to outreach to the citizens out in the districts. Uh, in really bringing agribusiness to the forefront within Helmand Province, making uh, farming and farmers more uh, business farmers than just subsistence farmers. That and really getting a good grip and a good handle on the uh, southeast power supply system and the efforts that are going to take place to uh, repair and upgrade the Kajiki Dam.
2: Just to give you an example of some of the things that we've been able to do since 2009, since the coalition forces and the U.S. surge began, I've told our Marines as they leave Helmand Province and they go home after a rotation, that not only have they contributed to the security, and not only have they contributed to the advisor trainable the Afghan, but they've also transformed Helmand Province in other ways. For example, from a commercial perspective, we've built over 1,072 kilometers of roads. Those roads are going to tie together all the major districts in Helmand Province and allow the farmers to bring their produce to market. Instead of just subsistence and and living off of it, they're now able to actually move that stuff around and sell it and make some money. We found uh, that whenever we make a, a gravel road, a simple gravel road,
0: whether it be up six eleven or up what we call route red. I guess you could say freedom of movement. The first word freedom is really what really what we're providing. It gives them the freedom to
1: choose what they're doing, gives them the freedom to choose like Jiro versus uh, the Taliban.
0: Afghans are innovative people. They can fix things, they can repair things, they can recover things. So a lot of things that we're teaching them. We're not trying to force speed the US model on
1: the Afghan model. You see these gentlemen when you go out in town, they have repair shops, they have body shops. They know how to fix weapons. they can do what they need to do. And they rely on supplies
2: coming up from Goreshk and Laskerga to make that economic engine go. And This will help that effort. As we get more connected to Laskerga, this will help governance uh, so that the uh, provincial government can come up and uh, actually do the things that are necessary to connect the people to their own government. There has to be some alternatives to the growth of poverty. Poppy is something that is easy to grow, it requires very little maintenance, and it provides a lot of money. But that money doesn't go to the farm. it doesn't go to the legitimate people. It goes to the, the land mafia, those that are more concerned about making money than they are about taking care of families. But cancer narcotics has also been a big, a big effort, and that's really been led by Governor Mangle and he's made that a very strong theme to drive down the narcotics trade. So for a lot of time that was about giving out subsidised wheat seed so farmers could grow wheat instead of poppy. And what we've seen in the last three years is a
0: 40% reduction in poppy cultivation in Helmand. So in the last 12 months, really for the first time, we've tried to broaden that programme to get into more high-value crops, alfalfa,
2: winter vegetables, things like that. And I think we see that as the way forward. So these roads offer an alternative for the farmers to grow something else and make a profit. It's going to take time, it's not going to happen overnight, but with the help of other nations, with the donations of other nations, with the technical know-how that's brought in through NGOs and IOs, we'll make a difference, but it's going to take
0: time. This is much more than a road, it's a symbol of creation, it's a symbol of the goods and services that can now flow in and out of Helmand Province. It's a symbol of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan's will to provide security here. We've also
2: made an investment in the future of Afghanistan. Today, there's 133 schools. Today, we've got over 1,600 teachers. I mean, that's a difference. And those teachers are coming here because they know that they can come down here and they can teach properly, and they don't have to worry about the rest of their life.
5: Almost uh, 17 to 18 schools we have here which are all active it has teachers students the teachers on time are coming to their schools and the students are attending their schools almost as I mentioned before 60 to 70 percent compared to the past education has been improved here
2: so the mission continues to change and it continues to evolve but we're putting more and more of the effort more and more of the focus onto the afghan and we're stepping back and we're supporting them. it's about 80 perhaps even 85 percent less
4: violent than it was during these months last year and that is tremendous progress
2: perhaps the trump card in all of that is an ever increasingly willful population in that who are increasingly defining their vote against the insurgency and in favor of Afghan legitimacy. And we see hard evidence
1: of that almost every day.
2: Uh, We uh, sweep out all the areas, leading the uh,
5: ANA up to the rooms and allowing the ANA to actually push into the rooms uh, so the locals can see that the ANA are uh, up front and also doing
2: all the searching so that we're eventually gonna just turn it over and uh, the locals will have trust in the ANA. It's uh, very important for us to understand why we're here Uh,
4: What's the purpose? And we will accomplish our mission, or we will stay here as long as it takes.
2: The threats are not completely gone, and the security's got to stay strong. And we've got to make sure the Afghan national security forces are resourced properly. That's a very important thing. But as long as they're resourced properly, the security will be maintained. The biggest threat that we have to the security forces is corruption. And as I said earlier, if we can offer alternative livelihoods to the Afghans, we'll, get, we'll cut through that corruption. And if we maintain the security like we have right now, we'll have a rule of law. We'll have prosecutors, attorneys, and judges that are willing to come down here into, into Helmand province and establish rule of law. And so people that do turn towards corruption will be held
0: accountable.
5: Because we
4: trust each other, we are working together. Uh, we have confidence in each other. That's why we brought this peace. And that is the key. It is trust. Trust builds everything.
2: The point is that we've made a difference. We've taken and Province from a very kinetic environment, a place where we've had significant fights, significant violence, significant battles against the Taliban. So today, where the number of kinetic activities is diminished, Yet the activity and the improvement and governance and development is just skyrocketing. So the difference is at very evident. Well, it would be great if uh, I could get that into the uh, film festival and uh, get the word out. I know that I'm speaking to a very informed group here, so I, 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 I'll I be frank and say that uh, the, the film highlights a lot of the accomplishments. Uh, you may have noticed the sensitivity to roads. I, I really uh, have to say that I despised the article I read when I was in Afghanistan, I, and I can't remember the author. Maybe he's here. I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> Called "Roads to Nowhere," and you know it made it sound like all the effort to you know build roads was just a waste of money. And I think what I tried to do is one, number one, make the connection that. Uh, you know the only way we're ever going to get any kind of business, any kind of legitimate economy going, particularly in my in the region that I was responsible for, is they got to develop, develop the agriculture, the agribusiness, as as they said. Um, and the roads were the only way to connect it. it. When I we first got there in March of 2011, it took almost two days to travel from south of Lashkagar, which is Camp Leatherneck. Up into Sengen, Today it takes two hours. Now, tell me that it doesn't make a difference to the people who are trying to move pomegranates from you know their farm to Kandahar. Um, it's made a difference, and, but uh, unfortunately I don't know why that person wrote that article. But I wish they had come to Helmand Province. And the other point is is that I mean many uh, counterinsurgent Philosophers and theorists have always said, you know, the insurgency begins where the roads end, and so you got to bring, you got to make that connection. The other thing I want to say is that um, all that progress can just fall apart quickly. There, it's it's not permanent. Uh, people talk about irreversible. I don't think that you can make it irreversible. I think the progress is real, it's tangible, but we could lose it. And the biggest threat, as I mentioned in the film, is in corruption. And I, I look at corruption at two levels. First of all, there's corruption at the central government level. Um, I can give you names of people. Um, Sher Muhammad al is this, is a senator uh, that is a close friend of President Karzai. And uh, he is the guy who uh, owns most of the property that's, that's producing the poppy. He's making, they're making a lot of money. And uh, unfortunately, he, he's got a significant influence in, 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 my, in my particular region. And it really rolls over and has an impact on the, on the uh, 82nd Airborne Commander's uh, region in Kandahar. Um, and if we can't restrict his influence, his negative influence in the area, we're going to have to contend with him for a long time. Uh, quite honestly, the governor that you saw—he's been the governor for three and a half years. He's a very effective governor. He's honest, and relative, and, and honest in relative terms. But he's an honest guy. And uh, you know, there's an interesting competition between those who joined the communist regime, the Soviet regime, and fought as a Soviet officer, and then those who fought against the Soviets and. Guys like SMA, Sher Mohammed Akin I mentioned, he's a former warlord. Uh, Governor Mango was, a, he, he fought in the Soviet, with the Soviets, in the Soviet Army, when the Soviet was in control. There's a certain little, you know, distrust and dislike. But that corruption, the money that's made in the drug industry is phenomenal. We estimate a billion dollar industry in, Hel- in, in Hellman Nimrod's province, I don't know what that figure turns into when it leaves Afghanistan and becomes heroin on the streets. It's phenomenal, but I haven't seen a number assigned to it, but it's a lot of money. And there are people in that central government who are profiting from it, and SMA is one of them. So we have to come up with, and so it's why the rule of law is so important, and we can talk more about where we're going there. But the other level of corruption is the one that I can impact on a little bit more directly, at least the guys in uniform can, and, and that is what I term predatory corruption. So you got the parasitic corruption at the central government. You know, a parasite needs a weak host to survive. And as long as that government, we've got to continue to strengthen the central government. But as long as we, there's, there's problems there, weakness there, guys like may may exist. The predatory corruption is among the Afghan national security forces, and as everybody has heard, they, and you know the the adage that you know power corrupts absolutely, and absolute power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely is very true for the Afghan security forces. If if we allow if we allow them to prey on the public, which has happened in the past, particularly among the police we'll lose that support that we have in Afghanistan. I tell people that when we first got into Afghanistan in 2010, when the surge really took root, you know, we were kind of the visiting team. We were the outsiders. We were bringing in that imprint, that footprint. But today, we truly are the home team. We're the home team because we have the support of the local nationals. Because the Afghan security forces are really stepping up to the plate and doing a pretty decent job, is there predatory corruption? Yes, and again, the importance here is that we need to be able to one identify it, but more importantly, is we need to hold them accountable. So it's not it's not pretty, it's not perfect. There are challenges, and and as as we all know from some of the. Mistakes that have been made by individual soldiers and marines, whether it be, you know, the urination on on Afghan soldiers, or it be the, you know, guy that goes outside the FOB and kills innocent Afghans. Those are powerful images that w- we have to make sure we guard against, and the only way of doing it is girding up the soldiers and marines and people who serve there, and ha- making sure that they understand. The importance of the values that uh, we try to stress are very, very important. And let's face it, I know that there's been over 150,000 Marines that have gone through Helmand Province since 2009 with a rotation cycle. And we've had one or two incidents. But the problem is it doesn't make any difference. It has powerful impact. So those are things that we need to guard against. But generally speaking, I think the film indicates that uh, there has been significant progress. So with that, I'd just like to turn it over to questions.
1: Thanks. Um, It asks that if you have a question, you raise your hand. Uh, Someone with a microphone will find you, and then please identify yourself and and what your affiliation uh, is. And as soon as the microphones work their way up, we're going to start with this lady uh, here. We'll start on this side for now, and then we'll work our way uh, right here on this side. Amber, is there on the end? Sorry, the second. Yeah, and is there another microphone that's going to be here? here. Great. All right, thanks,
5: General. I'm Mitzi Worth. I'm with the Naval Postgraduate School. Um, are you going to put this on the web so the rest of the country can see it?
2: You know, I'm glad you asked. I think we, we will do But it's available in DIVIDS, D-V-I-D-S, which I think anybody can access. Yeah. Right now, yeah, he's working on it right
1: now. <laughs> That's quick. That's good.
5: <laughs> um, I'm, I'm reading uh, Rachel Maddow's book right now called Drift. I don't know if you've read it yet. It's,
2: I have not. It's
5: number one on the bestseller list. And it is an extraordinarily well-researched history of the U.S. military and how things have changed since George Washington. So I'm now recommending it to everybody. But one of the questions it raised for me was the whole question of outsourcing, and the numbers of, and and basically how that has hidden the number of people that are actually engaged. Um, And what's it called? Um, Log cap? Is that what it is? Yes. So, do you have any idea how many log cap people you had to support your on-the-ground Marines, and how many Marines did you have at any given time?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I, Marines, 19,000, uh, but total forces in RC Southwest was 33,000. That was with the coalition coalition forces, and then when you add the civilians, it's add probably another 6,000. Uh, and they provided services from log cap with logistics capabilities uh, to, you know, tactical e- forensic experts that were uh, taking IEDs and getting fingerprints off them. Right? It's um, it is. I remember when we started drifting. And that's a,
5: that's about a third. Of, it's a it's a one to three rate ratio, probably.
2: It's uh well seven thousand and thirty three thousand. Oh,
5: I'm sorry. So, yeah, right. When we started drifting, go on.
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, the drift was a result of, uh, I think, with the efforts of the Department of Defense to really save money because they looked at these contractors, uh, food service, just take that as an example. Um, what it costs to train a Marine, bring them through boot camp, get them out there, do his training, get them to school – and then, you know, the medical support and all that's evolved, maybe just for a guy of four years. They figure they can undercut that with contractors ten times. So now they bring in food service specialists and they hire out contractors. And now we don't, have, we don't have cooks. We'd have a hard time, you know, getting back to that if we were to try. I guess, you know, the question is, are we still able to do the job? Yes. Yes. Um, but there is, there is a cost. Um, you know, i got 7,000 civilians living on Camp Leatherneck in, in Helmand Province that uh, are a challenge, to say the least.
1: So um, this gentleman here, uh, this gentleman in the second row here, and then we'll start working this. Uh, thank you.
2: Uh, <clears throat> Edwin Mora with cnsnews.com. My question is, uh, how long will U.S. forces have to be in Afghanistan? Um, when you say have to, how long will they have to be in Afghanistan, I mean, they'll have to be in Afghanistan as long as it takes for the Afghan security forces to establish, the, particularly the police, uh, and I'll say specifically the police, to establish local security and credibility among the population. They're, they're progressing, but they're not there. Um, they're still several years out. Um, so, and the reason why I say that is, you know, we've been, the guys in uniform have been dabbling in, in, in criminal investigation, evidence collection. We don't, know, we don't know about that stuff. I mean, the reality is we, we know how to conduct combat operations, but that's a special niche. And the people that bring that are local are law enforcement professionals. Much like what we had in Bosnia when, uh, you know, it took a couple of years when we realized, you know, we need to pool the assets in Europe and in the U.S. and bring law enforcement professionals to teach the police force how to operate in Bosnia. And then it took root. it really hasn't started yet in Afghanistan. But the force generation conferences that in the Chicago Summit coming up in, in May and That's going to be an issue that's going to take greater importance is how do we get those law enforcement professionals into Afghanistan. And when that takes root, then I think certainly military forces will be able to back out because the Afghan National Army will move to the periphery. They'll move to the borders. They'll be operating where they should be on the Pakistani and Iranian borders and not in the populated centers. It's not a place for the
1: military. It's a place for the police. Um, let's work these two uh, here. We'll work our way back. Yep,
4: please. Uh, my name, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> uh, my name is Arnold Zeitlin, and uh, I was uh, Associated Press bureau chief in Afghanistan some years ago when things were a lot more peaceful. Um, on the assumption that eventually. Military foreign military forces will leave Afghanistan, whether it's tomorrow or 19, uh, 2014, and despite a strategic agreement that we read about, uh, if the Afghans were left to their own devices, what would be the consequences for Afghanistan and for U.S. national security?
2: Uh. We intend to turn them over to their own devices here, anyway, pretty soon. Um, and so, I think there's a confidence among people in the uniform, in particular, and and really my State Department comrades who I work very closely with, and you saw a couple of them on the video, that uh, they're taking charge and they're they're taking ownership and they're, and they're they're taking responsibility. So, the variables that exists that will distort and, and disrupt that whole process is corruption. I, I think it's plain and simple. Um, whether, and at the central government as well as the local level. So I believe that if I didn't believe that, I, would, I wouldn't, I uh, would I'd have a hard time saying that we had success in Afghanistan. I believe that the Afghans will be able to stand up against the threats that exist there. Um,
1: but corruption is the one word. Just one up. I'm, I'm, getting the mic, just so we pick it up. On
4: I, I, it. Uh, I basically mean uh, mm. between uh, the Taliban and uh, the present regime, okay. or whoever comes after the election. More
2: specifically, you know, I will tell you. Words, th-
4: can the two of them ever come together to create a
2: viable Afghanistan? That that that. that taps in a couple of areas. I mean, I will tell you that the Afghan security forces are are better equipped, better trained, and better led than the insurgency, Taliban insurgents are. That wasn't the case a couple of years ago. The senior leadership of the Taliban, they they don't leave Quetta very often, and when they do leave, they're targeted pretty effectively. So the middle-level Taliban who, in many cases, are, are really disenfranchised local people who, when they were fighting against Sher Mohammed Akhundzada and those authoritarian, totalitarian type leaders, those warlords back in the day, they turned to the Taliban to protect their families. Um, I, I see them, I've talked to several of those Taliban commanders, and they want, they're reintegrating, they're coming back into the fold. Uh, to join up with the government. So I, I see that happening. We will never bring, I don't believe, the senior Taliban leaders at quota will ever really join or the government of Afghanistan. There will still be a threat, but it will be a lesser threat because they won't have the support of local nationals and they won't have local Taliban. Um, so I, 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 I think it's, uh, it's a matter of just maintaining the trust that they have with the local people, and keeping the security forces. But we can lose the security forces. If, if we don't back them up uh, with medical, with special operations forces, with fires, with uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, we need to keep those assets and resources there for years after 2014. They would feel very bad. And they would lose confidence if we walked out in 2014 and we took all our medical support with us. Right now, uh, the, uh, the Taliban are, or excuse me, the Afghans are suffering greater casualties among the police and, this armed for, and the army than we are by, by double. Uh, but we're still providing them medical care. We take that away from them. Uh, it's just like our own guys. Our own guys go to fight and are confident that if they get hurt, they're going to be taken care of. The Afghans are no different, but they don't have that capability. So we could, we could lose that confidence if we prematurely pull any of those things away from them, uh, and that's where the Taliban will take advantage of them. So we need to guard against that. This gentleman right there, yeah, right by you, Samin. Thanks. Hey, sir. Uh, Jeff Dressler with the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, thanks for taking the time to
0: be here with us this morning. Uh, you touched on Sheikh Mohammed al and his relationship with President Karzai. Uh, we know his brothers, just named Governor of Veruzgan. Um, some of their strongholds in northern Helmand are still still there, even though you could argue they're not as strong as they used to be. But, you know, as we get to 2014 and beyond, you know, w- what sort of measures are we putting into place now? What sort of, I guess, lasting stability mechanisms are in place in Helmand to
1: resist the malign influence of an SMA coming back, uh, whether it's replacing Governor Mongol when the Brits and the Marines are no longer there uh, or, or what have you. What, what does that look like and what sort of mechanisms can we put in place now so that even if that does happen, uh, we can prevent it from being a tremendously destabilizing event?
2: I think um, it's, a ch- it's a challenge because he, he is pervasive. His influence is pervasive. I don't know of all the areas where he has been pervasive. I mean, we have uncovered some, but there's more. Um, to be honest, the Helm is an interesting place. There's a there's a city you're familiar, obviously, with Greshk. Greshk is sort of the commercial center of Helmand Province. Gresk has been quiet; was quiet for years, and. Uh, what we, we come to find out is that Goreshk is sort of the financial center for Helmand Province. A lot of the Hawalas and Hawaladars operate out of Goreshk. And the Taliban, the insurgency has been funded by a lot of the criminal patronage networks that Shia Mohammed Akinzada controls. Money goes through Goreshk. The Taliban insurgents uh, have been funded by these guys. And we, basically what's happened over time is they've Fueled the insurgency, but they told them, don't come into Goreshk. Goreshk is our territory, criminal patronage network territory. Don't bring your problems into Goreshk. And what they effectively were able to do is keep the coalition forces out of Goreshk. And we were absorbed with fighting the insurgency in places around there, but Goreshk was untouched. What we're trying to do now is we're trying to, using an, Afghan threat finance, cell using... Afghan narcotics interdiction units, using a lot of the Afghan um, uh, criminal investigative capabilities to now get into Goresh, uncover these Hawalas and Hawaladars, shut them down, and go after the money. Because that's that's not only fueling the insurgency, it's been fueling SMA and and other drug lords. I mean, that money moves so easily through that process. But that's coin 401 i mean that's that's high level stuff and and, and it, it, again we can dabble at it but we really need the experts to come in and un, and and so we're we're working with treasury and others to, to sort of do that i think i think that's the way we can hurt them is in the pocketbook and uh and then lastly, and, I, and one obvious one, is rule of law. I mean, we need to continue to. You saw uh, bringing the judges and the prosecutors into Helmand Province. They're, they're coming in now. They're, we lost quite a few. They, got, they were killed, and uh, they were brave, brave folks. The situation is changing, Helmand, and they feel more comfortable. And so if we get that rule of law uh, system in place, that will also hold them accountable.
1: Right. The, the gentleman there,
6: yes, thank you. And then we'll work our way back. Yeah. Thank you. I'm Pete Shetley from Brookings. Two quick comments to which I'd appreciate your thoughts. One is uh, I was active duty Army during Vietnam, and much of your session, presentation just brought back all kinds of memories with the senior brass saying how great everything was, getting better every day in every way, and on the ground it looked totally different, and the message the American people got through the media was totally different. So, point one, tell us how this is not a repeat of Vietnam. Point two is, as long as Karzai keeps making his fairly strong anti-U.S. comments, I see the chance of congressional support for spending money in Afghanistan as zero, not close to zero, but zero. And you described the importance of continuing to support the Afghan army with budgets and so on. If Karzai doesn't change his tune, that's never going to happen. So, isn't don't we have just trouble ahead?
2: Well, those are some uh, tough questions. Trying to make any comparisons between Vietnam and and uh, Afghanistan would be difficult. Um, except that if you take the long term view, in in Vietnam. And I had the opportunity uh, in a previous job in, in OSD to address the families of MIA POWs in, from the Vietnam era. And people have a tendency to say, well, you know, it was terrible. You failed. You got the wrong perspective of what was going on on the ground. But if you look at it in the long term, and if you look at the, 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 what do we call it, the, the dragons of uh, Asia and how successful they are today, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, those places, um, you can attribute an awful lot, And, and I personally heard the president of Singapore say that because of the efforts in Vietnam, although it wasn't recognized in the short term, in the long term, that's why those countries are successful, because Vietnam kept that communist role from moving further, and those countries grew as a a result of it. So it's a long-term thing, and maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but certainly the president of Singapore believes that to be true. What did we go to Afghanistan for? We went to Afghanistan not to stop the narcotics trade, uh, really uh, not even to build that nation. We went to Afghanistan so that we could prevent Afghanistan from being a safe haven for terrorist activities. I mean, if you, if you judge it on the original merits of why we went there, uh, so far it's been relatively successful. It has been costly, and just like Vietnam was costly. Uh, and uh, the only way, in my, my estimation, and again, I'm tainted, but the only way to, to honor those sacrifices is to stay the course and to, and to see this thing through. We've got a deadline, 2014. We established it. We're drawn down. We're doing everything the president mandated, and uh, we need to see it through, I, I, I believe. And there will be some residual forces that will stay past 2014. As I mentioned, I mean, I think we need to provide medical support. We need to continue to provide special operation forces for mentoring their special operation forces because special operations forces don't come easy. You know, it takes several years to get there. We need to provide intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance for them, and uh, you know that medical capability is critical. To uh, so the, so, we need to stay beyond 2014. But otherwise, we're coming. We're coming out of there. We've we we've, we've met the numbers. We it was painful. While I was there, I drew down 3,000 Marines within three months, and we're drawn down from approximately 19,000 to 7,000 by September. It's a huge change. Didn't know when I was going in there that I was coming down that that, that steep. But, you know, I guess if we were the product of victims of our own success. General Allen, the ambassador, looked at in Province and said, hey, things are going great down there. he's doing a good job. All right, we'll cut them. So, uh, and as I look at it, he's right. But as I said earlier, I mean it's not irreversible. So I don't know if that answered the question. That was a tough one, but. What about Karzai's comments? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I, Karzai, I questioned, you know, his associations. I trust questioned his association with Sherman Mohammed akinzada Uh I also know that uh, back in the early days when uh, they were. Uh, fighting against the, the communists. Sher Mohammed Akinzada was, uh, was in Helmand and uh, Karzai was in Aruzgan and, and they were attacking the Soviets in Kandahar and Lashkagar. They were buddies. They built a bond as warlords back in those days. So I guess that's where the relationship goes. But today he's a bad influence. And he needs to change it, but, you know, somehow he, he chooses his uh, advisors and counsel uh, unwisely. So I will also say that what Karzai says in the news and what he says personally is different. And when he talks about no night attacks, no night raids, he's talking about uh, U.S. forces conducting night raids uh, independently. We don't conduct night raids. Uh, U.S. forces do not go into uh, Afghan homes anymore. It's Afghan forces. So typical, I did night raids every night. And typically the night raids consisted of about 80, forces, 80 people. About 65 of them were, were Afghans and the 15 or so were advisors. The Afghans did the, did the raids. And Karzai knows that. Um, but he's he's just harping on that because it is a culturally sensitive issue about a U.S. For, or coalition forces entering a home. We don't do that anymore, and if we do do it, it's very rare. Um, and then the detention issue of uh, you know taking over responsibility for detainees. Of realizes I realize is he does not have the apparatus in place yet to to take a detainee, arrest them, do the criminal investigation, adjudicate it, prosecute it, and then put them in a proper prison. It's not set up yet. He knows that, but he also knows that it's a sovereignty issue and that there's a sensitivity. Uh, and to his senior people in Kabul, he's constantly hearing, hey, we need to take responsibility. We want our deta- detainees back, but they're not ready for that yet. So, I think uh, Karzai is a political person. He's not always what you see is what you
1: get. Same is true with well. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, the, the 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 yeah. Um, let's see this gentleman here, and then we'll go to this lady here. Thanks,
3: sir. Good morning. My name is Randall Morgan. I'm CEO of Morgan Language Services. My team provides training for U.S. forces prior to deployment to Afghanistan. Uh, Specifically, we employ and manage a few hundred Afghan role players that populate mock Afghan villages down in Playa, New Mexico. And our recent training has focused on uh, cultural immersion and a heavy emphasis on key leader engagements. I wonder if you could uh, share your perspective of what, objectives and and priority needs uh, we may have for training for our troops before deployment as our overall mission in Afghanistan evolves?
2: Yeah, no, um, I'll start with key leader engagement. For people like myself and some of my commanders, um, it's really that's what our job is, in a coin environment, is to maintain a regular uh, engagement schedule with all the Afghan leadership. Uh, it's very important, and so understanding that environment. I I remember in Iraq when I was in I mean I was in Fallujah, and I I, I was involved in the you know the the first assault, and then I I was told, hey, stop, pull out. Oh, let's give let's uh, negotiate with them and give back Fallujah. It was hard for me to accept. And um, but what I realized is I actually came back from Iraq and I went to command and staff college and one of the first things I did was I instituted a program where uh, the officers understood what negotiations were all about and how to negotiate and you know, how to use the book called Getting to Yes. But you know, sort of just how how that how that that works. Because I was we were thrust into that environment. So understanding key leader engagement, understanding the nuances and Uh, I learned that word new once working in the Pentagon.
1: (laughs) But uh, as a verb too. (laughs) (laughs)
2: So, but so I think it's very important. The role players. It's interesting because now in training, and this is, you know, I'm glad that you asked that question because I was just down watching one of my battalions that's going to Afghanistan go through uh, some scenarios. It's no longer the U.S. forces out front conducting business. Now they have to step back. And so what you, what you now you have to work with is, is you know, and it's very difficult to find the leverage points to keep the Afghans, first of all, wanting your support. Because if you don't have anything to give them, they say, we can do it on our own. But understanding that is, is, very, is very important uh, because that's what we're going to be doing for the next couple of years. So it's uh, – I don't think that we can – and this is probably from somebody like myself who's had, you know, challenges in learning languages. It's very, it's very hard to, you know, really run tr- Marines and soldiers through language training and expect them to actually use it effectively. You know, you're going to know some words, and that's appreciated. But, you know, to really in-depth know the language, you've got to have native speakers who are really from that area. And, and that's a commodity that is sometimes hard to come by. Just in, in Leatherneck, right before I left, you know, and of course, too, vetting through this process is challenging. But we had one of the interpreters, a native, you know, who stole a truck and tried to run over my replacement. Lighted, lit himself on fire, and uh, he wasn't too smart. But, I mean, he, he uh, so the interpreter was, was who lived right there turned, you know, so we got we have to watch that, but but anyway, I think um, it's extremely important cultural awareness, cultural understanding, and language capabilities, and knowing how to negotiate and talk to them in key leader engagement is critical. This lady here, right by me.
3: Hello, General Sarah Bum said I actually met you out in Nottalee, uh when you were out there to visit with General Allen, and couple of things just sort of looking at, in light of transition, in light of the Civ-Mil relationship, which I think was really improving out in, in Southwest over 2011. As your forces are drying down and our civilian presence is starting to shrink a little bit too, how do we better prepare the civilians who are getting ready to go out to the changing, the changing military situation in terms of our freedom of movement is now going to change? On another side, I know that I'm pretty sure that it was Michael O'Neill who referenced the food zone in Helmand and how that has had a significant impact on poppy growth within the canal zone. But it's now been moving out to the dash, to the desert areas. Um, The political advisor that I worked with from the Brits in the district, we were looking at how to actually engage the desert population and bring them into Jeroa because none of the foreign programs could accommodate them because they were not legal. Do you see, and I know that Mangal was not in fully receptive to that while I was there. Have you seen any movement from that level? I know that the Marines were also trying to work on proposals for that as well, towards at least starting to bring them in on some sort of land lease process or something that can start to bring them into the system so that they don't become a destabilizing force on the canal zone.
2: Well, obviously you, you have a pretty deep understanding of the issues there. Um, one of the challenges regarding the civilians continuing to conduct business in the in, in Helmand province in particular is, is, is their security. And it's different. Because, you know, in Helmand, really I've been uh, dependent on the British Provincial Reconstruction Team to do the development projects and help build the governance. They have a different standard than our State Department do for security. Uh, so... Um, we have some challenges because as as we move out of all those areas that we've been in for a long time, we had 250 patrol bases throughout Helmand Province. When I left, we were down to 100. By September, we'll be down to 26. So as we come out of all those places that we're we're turning a lot over or we're building for the Afghans facilities for them to operate in – the PRT, particularly the UK forces, are not willing to keep their civilian teams in those in those areas. So, the State Department and, and USAID and others have—I uh, won't say less standards, but they they are willing to uh, uh, accept a little more risk—and um, so. But yet they, the, our U.S. State Department, we call the Regional Platform, which is our State Department organization, which is, doesn't parallel the PRT. It, it sort of augments them, the British PRT, um, is dependent upon the PRT sort of the, to, for their assets. So so it's still something that we need to work out. And uh, I think ultimately what will happen is by the early 2013, the civilians will be operating at a consulate's. Uh, and uh, and the capital Lashkar and they will travel to uh, various places to conduct their business, but they won't stay there. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's the way it'll end up. Um, but the other issue you brought up is is way way complicated, and uh, I, we couldn't, we didn't solve it. We didn't even come close. And that, I mean, that's the whole issue of land ownership. Um, There isn't really a very good historical uh, file of who owns what land. First of all, it's just been it's been so confused over the years. So what happened was many of the big power brokers took land, and and so now for the past ten years or so, sort of, well, they occupy it, they own it. But there's there's land claims now coming out. Now that the government is establishing primacy and, and, you know, we're getting rule of law established, now people are trying to make files to say, hey, this was my land, but you have somebody else living on it. That's one issue. And then the second issue is that there's so many disenfranchised people that have nothing um, that the, the this land mafia, the power brokers, so to speak, uh are taking advantage of these people. They're farming the land, but they don't have any ownership. And so the idea is, you know, it's as you said, it's this poppy development is moving out of the population centers, which is a good thing because uh, we had. He said, uh, Michael said, forty percent reduction. Really, is fifty percent reduction of poppy growth in the green zone, and and that's the result of a lot of the efforts of the PRT and regional platform to. Um, provide alternative livelihoods so that they could grow other things, and and so the land mafia, the the illegal people, have taken land, uh, graded it, and you know, threw their tractors over it, groomed it for growth growing poppy, provided built water well, built wells, and provided seed, and then brought these people in to farm it, taking it from planting the harvest. But as soon as the harvest is over, these people will get a a few bucks, and then they're off the land. So what happens is, and this is complicated, but now the government-led eradication program, which is the governor and his forces taking tractors and going to these poppy growth areas that are now out in the deserts and mowing it over, just destroying it, and the only people that really are adversely affected are the people who are farming it because, you know, the, the, the people with the money still are going to have money. By doing that, we take those disenfranchised people and we say, okay, everything's just been taken. You know what? I'm going to side with the Taliban. I'm going to allow them to come into my area, and I'm going to make it a lot more difficult for everybody. So now, now they owe to the Taliban they don't have much anyway, but now they owe to the Taliban, who are now providing semi-security. And uh, what we're trying to do is address the problem at the next level. We're trying to go after the uh, criminal pages networks that are funding this poppy cultivation in the deserts uh, and uh, trying to avoid—Governor Mangal has agreed that he would not take— Everything from these uh, subsistence farmers Uh, and that, uh, you know, the effort would be to identify and locate the Taliban operating in the desert. We'll see how successful it is. But I think that this year, when you look at the green zone and the poppy reduction, it's going to be even more. I would say another 15 percent. But it's moved out to the desert. But that's a good thing, as I said before, because now we've isolated the insurgents from the population. We've taken them, their anonymity away, and we've made it harder for them. It was easy to plant, easier to plant IEDs and things in a populated area. They could show up. You know, is he planting an IED or is he digging? But we're not in a desert, especially with our ISR capabilities. We're pretty sure what they're doing. Uh, and so... In the long run, I think it'll be effective, but right now there's still some unfair suffering with uh, people who don't have land. That's a that's a tough one.
1: Yes, in the back.
0: Hi General uh, John Patton. I used to be with both uh, Department of State and USAID, and at the Kandahar PRT in the early days, then Regional Command South. For the past five years, I've been a Civ Mill trainer, whether with uh, uh, civilian units like the platform folks or military battalions. And actually, that's the level I'd want to ask you about, the PRT level on the way down. Um, We we were out uh, uh, training some of the battalions from the 1-1 out of Fort Bliss uh, this past month, and one of the command sergeant majors uh, was under the impression that PRTs are transitioning to uh, PATs and DSTs transitioning to DATs, uh, could District Assistance
1: Could you, because I don't know those acronyms, could you? Um...
0: Provincial Reconstruction Team, uh, District Stability Team, uh, and a new moniker called uh, Provincial Assistance Team or or District Assistance Team. I'm not sure how the, the government's connected to that, if it's in thank fact you, you. transitioning. Um, if we could address that first, I have one more question after that.
2: It it is is in the process of transitioning. Um, What they still don't know is actually the U.K. has not established the minimum security requirement, uh, the minimum security requirement for the British DSTs, which are the ones that are out there in the districts, as you know. So when when that's determined, that will have an impact. We have really uh, drawn down uh, from 19,000 in October to 17,500 right now. The big reduction in Helmand Province is going to come up in May, where we will send home between May, June, and July probably upwards of 5,000. And then there's going to have to be some decisions, hard decisions made about the security requirement. And the, and the U.K. is still working on that and I don't know what the I is, so I don't know but yes there is a transition and those assistant teams are those teams that will be on the road they will travel from to and back so they'll be commuting to work the good thing is is they can commute cuz there's there's good roads and there's and the roads are relatively safe um, but the bad thing is is as you know relationships are everything and those relationships that have been built will now sort of Fade, fade away.
0: Thank you, sir. And if I could just ask a follow-up question. It's actually a follow-on to the two uh, previous questions. It's about the the mission of a maneuver battalion, because uh, some of these guys are asking me the questions, and they're, they're a little confused on the mission as far as okay, you're, I'm telling them as a civilian, you're not in the governance lane. You're not in the development lane. We have a lot of programs put against this, um, so we're not doing seed projects, water projects, uh, and the like. that We're, we're trying to Link the, as you said, the the Afghan governance and and link systems rather than just what we used to call several years ago, putting an Afghan face on it. Um, But, but in real terms, doing that. So, because some of the projects have actually been destabilizing, uh, you know, from the research that we've done over the past ten years, um, we're we're trying to link those systems. But it is very muddy or fuzzy how we actually. You know, tell a maneuver battalion one of them going to Shawalikot in, in southern Kandahar uh, later this year. All right, what is the mission? How do we uh, h- how do we not do more damage here? How do we link the right actors? Uh, how do we address uh, some of these issues?
2: The uh, I mean that's that's a good question, and I would hope that I know that the Marines that are going out there will understand that um, their primary function. Of the 7,000 Marines that we'll have in there in October, um, about almost 1,500, 1,800 of them will be security force assistance teams. Uh, And so they will work side by side with the Afghans from the core level really down to the brigade level. And they will also be with every police precinct in the populated centers uh, as well as some of the other security forces, Border Patrol, ANCOP, et cetera. The remaining forces uh, will, be, there's, there's, a, there's a support tail, so there's maybe another 1,500 support, so you got 3,000 there. The other 3,000 Marines will comprise a maneuver element that will be used first either to provide fire support for the Afghans if they need it, but also extremist uh, support if they get into a situation where they need us to back them up. And, and so it's, a, it's it's going to be a highly maneuverable force, helicopter-borne predominantly, but we'll be able to move out on vehicles. And so the primary mission, though, is to reinforce the Afghans, to, to, to be that confidence that they'll be there behind them for the next couple of years. That's the mission. It is no longer any more clear build and hold. It doesn't. We're in phase four of counterinsurgency. That is security force assistance.
1: This gentleman here. Yep. thanks. And then we'll go to the back. Yep. Hi, Frank Kelleher with the World Bank. <laughs> the Afghan Foreign uh, Defense Minister last week uh, suggested that following 2014, Afghan troop levels will have to decrease from about 352,000 to 230,000. That seems to suggest that coupled with the drawdown of coalition troops after 2014, that the reversibility of a lot of the gains that have been made in the south and elsewhere in the country is much more likely to occur. And these roads that have been built, for example, are, you know, they've improved things considerably, but how secure will they be in another two or three years, coupled with you know what can be expected to be a deteriorating situation?
2: Okay. I mean, these legitimate concerns. I will tell you that the uh, 350,000, 352,000 number for security forces was a surge number. I don't think it was ever anticipated that we would sustain 352,000 security forces beyond 2014. I think it's 20, I think then they said 2015 is when they would start looking at reductions. So it's been a surge number, much like what we did. We can't we surged and, and we're coming down. Um, the, the problem I see with that is that we built a sort of contract. We established a little contract with these people that these jobs would be there. Now it's possible. Some say that through attrition, that we could come down off those numbers and and be able and so we wouldn't have a major riff. We wouldn't be putting people out on the streets without jobs that through attrition over the next couple of years, the numbers will come down. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work, but we can't. The last thing we, we should do is, is, uh, uh, disrupt that contract that we have with those people who are really bravely committed to serving either in the police or the army. Um, there's never going to be enough police or army to provide security on all the roads. We don't have enough now. And what we have to uh, rely upon is the, the local governments taking ownership of those roads. And, and I believe it's possible to do that as, we, as, we, as they see the benefit, the commercial and economic benefit, that those roads provide them. And, and that's not an easy task, but we, there are places. You know, I can tell you up in Musakela, up there in the northern part of Helmand Province, uh, where when we finished the road that connects Musiquela with Goresh, when we finished that, price of gas went down by, three, by by 70%. I mean, food products were able to be moved. People were making money. They want that road, and they're key, and they're they're investing in it, uh, and uh, it's it's making a difference. So the security forces won't be able to protect them all. And you're absolutely right; it is something to be concerned about. But I think the local governments can take that ownership.
5: So there
1: was somebody in the back. Yes,
5: um, Rosemary Reed, citizen with DC Historical Society. You mentioned heroin, poppy, uh, twice. Um, and I know it might not exactly be your area, but where is that market Europe or United States and do you do any kind of work to um, lower arm our, our need for it or intervention there
2: the uh, the narcotics industry is an interesting uh, challenge uh, for us there we are not there uh, to uh, reduce or eliminate the narcotics industry and the impact that it has on the United States. It's said that really the impact of Afghan poppy heroin has less of an impact in the U.S. as it does in Europe. I've heard various percentage numbers, uh, but 70 percent of the heroin that's running the streets of Europe coming from Afghan, Afghanistan for sure. It's the reason why the UK, to be honest, politically, they when in in their discussions with their people about why they're in Afghanistan, one of the the elements that they raised several years ago was that they were there to go and try and reduce the impact of narcotics industry from Afghanistan in the UK. But we're not necessarily winning that that battle. Um, There's still not a lot of opium being harvested, and, and then heroin being produced. Most of the pure heroin is being produced outside of Afghanistan. I've worked with the DEA very closely while I've been in Afghanistan. They're doing a great job. They're uh, working and training with uh, the Afghan Narcotics Interdiction Unit. It's growing. It's having a positive impact. It's keeping people like SMA on the run. But... Uh, um, We're not going to be able, we're just going to be able to scratch at the surface. We interdicted $78 million worth of opium between October and March of this past year. I thought that was a lot. Uh, We we had some great successes. But, you know, I've been brought back to reality when I speak to the DAA guys and they tell me, well, that's only about 12% of the amount of opium that's being moved through Afghanistan and across the borders. So we're just scratching at the surface. It's interesting that, and some of you may know this, but in 98 to 2000, there was zero poppy grown in Afghanistan. The Taliban dictated that there would be no poppy because it was a violation of the Koran. Somehow, people didn't grow poppy. I think the Taliban realized, though, that, excuse me, when I say Taliban, I'm talking about the radical Taliban. I mean, there are religious Taliban who are legit, but the insurgent Taliban, excuse me, the religious Taliban said no growing a poppy, and the people listened. But then the insurgent Taliban, the ones that are living in Quetta, realized, hey, you know, if we're going to fund fuel this insurgency, we need funding, drugs provided that for them. I don't know what the answer is, except that we're sort of scratching at the surface, but eliminating drugs was not our objective. And uh, I think the U.K. identified it as an objective. So they got a little bit of a – they need to explain to their public, hey, we're not we're not getting there. So I don't have the answer to that one. But, you know, we've been fighting that one in Mexico and other places. So
1: we've got uh, this lady and that gentleman behind, and then I'll see – we may be running out at that point, so that's all I, I'm going to I'm
5: Ayana Najuma with Lincoln McLeod. I just want to back uh, – Follow-up on Rosemary's question. How how are drugs impacting the country itself, though? You're talking about Europe and the U.S., what's happening in-country in terms of drug use? And I know that's not your area, but...
2: Yeah, no, um, there are a lot of the, the local subsistence farmers that are harvesting the poppy that are growing addictions to heroin, to opium. Just clearing those going through the process of scoring the bulbs and all that, that stuff works its way through. I mean, so they, they, they have an addiction problem. And the, the Ulama councils, particularly in Helmand province, are on a mission to uh, prevent children from conduct, doing the harvesting. But they're a great you know, resource for labor, and so they're out there doing it. And they're developing addictions. Um, if you look at the Iranian border, just on the other side of the Iranian border, they're having severe uh, heroin, opium addictions as a result of all the drugs that's moving through there. So it, it's, it's, ha- it's having societal impact, uh, and the people know that they would like to get rid of it. It's one way of attacking these criminal pagers networks who are ma- benefiting from the drug industry, uh, but it is a problem. And that's the reason why they're developing... Uh, interdiction units, uh, sort of a DEA-type uh, organization uh, to go after it. Uh,
1: this gentleman here to wrap up. Please. Yeah, Thank you. Uh, my name is Larry Cohen, former State Department, served on a couple PRTs. Um, first of all, I want to correct a misimpression you may have given. I don't believe the Taliban uh, eradicated or stopped poppy cultivation out of the goodness of their hearts. It was more a supply-demand issue. Uh, they were That's sitting on a lot of stock, that. and uh, the prices had collapsed, and they wanted to force the price up. So.
2: It's a glass-half-full, glass-half-empty perspective, yeah, but I you're know. right. I mean, I don't know which is true.
1: Okay. Uh, just wanted to uh, pose something. You described quite a bit of success in Helmand Province, but haven't we seen kind of a balloon effect where if you're squeezing in Helmand Province, maybe the, you're seeing things getting worse in neighboring provinces as uh, insurgents move into these other areas?
2: Yeah, it's that infamous balloon Ish, uh, analogy, But I don't – okay, so the surrounding provinces, let's say Nimroz province, for example. Nimroz, the entire province, transitioned a few months back to Afghan lead. Um, you know, it's a, it's a Baluch-ran uh, government, and so they have a pretty tight uh, structure. But they're not suffering from uh, any of the pressure that we put in Helmand province. And uh, truthfully, if you look on the other side, if you look towards Kandahar and you look towards places like Panjue, uh Bandy Timor and those places, um, the v- there is very little kinetic activity. Yet, despite the fact 82nd Airborne is in there on a regular basis. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, we have problems on the borders. We have problems in Baram Char, which borders Helmand Province in Pakistan. It's a free-moving uh, highway of drugs and lethal aid, but I don't think the balloon effect has imp- has has really impacted much as a result of what we've done in Helmand Province. Um, I don't know Herat, Herat, and uh, up in blue in uh, uh, northern areas. It, it's it's hard to say because there's very little. A coalition a pre- representation up in Harad. You got the Italians up there with, that are very small. So, you know, there could be safe havens that are developing there that I don't know about. Um, and so it's very possible that we could have pushed them up into there. And those are areas that I think probably as we go further, closer to 2014 will have to be investigated. But but I, But I really haven't seen a big balloon effect around um, I know what I know, I don't know what I, you know, you know. <laughs> who is that <laughs> famous Secretary of Defense?
1: Well, I want um, personally to thank General Tulan again for your service sure. and also coming coming out here and talking to us and educating uh, all of us. And I want to thank all of you for coming and I want to ask you to thank the General. So. Thank you. Thank you.